Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Back in the 80s as a Yankee fan, George Brett was the ultimate Yankee killer. And I remember one summer he was hitting about 418 or so. So even if he went two for five in a ball game, which is remarkable, his average would actually go down. I mention that because Danny Moses has dominated with his NFL picks the entire year, 18 weeks of genius. But this last week, his 89% winning percentage actually went down to 86%. He is now 25-4 and in the league where they play for pay. Danny Moses, brilliant regardless. Freaking overtime. I thought I was going to pull out that Charger game, but whatever. We move on. Thank you, guy. No, it's it's incredible. I mean, that Charger game, by the way, they will talk about that for decades to come. I know Dan Nathan will talk about that for a number of different reasons, not least of which now where he stands with you. Yes, eight eight times in the hole. He's got a bunch of games in the playoffs to get it back. Dan, I'm actually rooting for you. All right, fair enough. When you want to bet with me instead of against me, you let me know. I'll I'll put it down for you. Then we can be a team. You know you'd be doomed at that point. All right, let's get into it here, people. You are listening, by the way, to On the Tape, as I'm sure you surmised when you clicked it in your favorite, what do they call that, Dan, a podcast store? I know I have my favorite podcast stores, but... That is Danny Moses. That is Dan Nathan. I'm Guy Adami. By the way, later, joined by the big chill cats, Vinnie Daniel and Porter (laughs) Collins. I love those guys. I actually didn't watch the movie this week, but I saw some clips. But again, another remarkable week in the markets. I guess some of it is predicated on what was an interesting testimony from Fed Chair Jerome Powell, Danny. Let me just say it's our one year. I think it's been a year. I think we launched mid-January last year. So another milestone for us. Great to be. And a lot has happened in these last 52 or 53 weeks. And he didn't say anything that I think was unexpected. Literally, I think the market was literally pricing as if he was going to have an emergency Fed meeting prior to his testimony and raise rates that day. I mean, so I think the market got a little bit ahead of itself to the downside. That being said, we could talk later where I think the market is going to head anyway. But it was just a little bit of a relief rally that we got during and after his testimony. Really nothing changed. They're going to be raising rates here, I think, in March is what it looks like. And they're going to stop buying assets. Tapering's accelerating here. And so we'll be down to, I think, $30 billion a month in February of what they're buying, down from what started at 120 just three or four months ago. So a lot here to still sift through, and we'll get into that a little bit here later, but certainly be an eventful week. To your point, Danny, you've been talking about the two-year U.S. Treasury yield, and you've been saying that's going to be like more closely track what the Fed is going to do with Fed funds, right, coming off this kind of zero interest. And so you've seen this move from mid-December from basically 60 basis points to 90 basis points. But what I thought was most interesting, in it, and I know, Guy, you've been focused on this 210 spread here, is that the 10-year doesn't go anywhere. I mean, that literally, as we're talking right now, the 10-year is at 1.7. And I guess the big story is for 2022 is really going to be what you've been talking about for months now, Danny, is like, okay, is the 10-year telling us that growth is going to be lower than expected for the balance of 2022? And the two-year is just telling us that the Fed's going to finally get their act together. I guess what's frustrating for me, and I'll let Guy talk about it in a second, is that just using the 10-year yield on its own to decide whether you're going to buy the Qs and the NASDAQ or not or sell it is crazy to me. Because if I was actually a growth investor and I wanted you know, stocks to perform, there's a level of rates where I think it's still acceptable. It's just a matter of what's causing those rates to move higher. And I'll stand by the fact that I believe that the two-year yield keep moving higher is going to cut off growth in the economy. And the 10-year is the wrong thing to watch. And the 10-year yields coming in are actually a very bearish sign longer term for the economy. Because really what you want is Fed to raise rates a couple times, a 1% two-year and a 25 to 3% 10-year. Yeah, that may be a shock to the system, but that's a healthy evolution. So what we're seeing right now, I think, is unhealthy. It's a witch's brew and it's, and it's unhealthy what I'm watching. And I'm sick and tired of seeing the 10-year as a proxy to decide whether or not to buy or sell stocks. That's kind of my take. Yeah, and you were early on that. You pointed that out. And I've obviously come around to that way of thinking. It's the right way to think. By the way, on top of that, you have a U.S. dollar 
that's starting to give it up a little to the downside. And it's just, there's so many cross currents here that I can't wrap my head around. I mean, theoretically, I would imagine the dollar should be continuing to go higher, but now we're talking about a relative strength thing. So as we're tightening here in the United States, guess what? They're doing the same thing in Europe. And when you talk about a DXY to the extent that you watch it, which is 60% uh, from the euro, I mean, you see what's going on in Europe. So there's so many cross currents to be concerned about. And I'll just add this, and I've said it before, but it's worth saying again. You know, so many people live by the mantra, don't fight the Fed. And I totally understand that. But typically that is said when the Fed is easing, adding liquidity, all those things. And if you're fighting the Fed, you're being bearish under that scenario. Well, the Fed has changed course. And if you're bullish now, by definition, in my opinion, you are absolutely fighting this Federal Reserve. I'm holding back here a little bit because I, I don't want to be added by everybody, but I'm about as bearish as I've been in, a, in, in a long, long time. And I can play the game of buy the dip a little bit, sell into strength, do all that. But structurally speaking right now, everything's now in front of us. The Fed is raising rates. The Fed is tapering. That is going to happen, period, end of story. This market hasn't really had to deal with that for several years and hasn't had to deal with it on a sustained basis for over a decade. So I think this is something that is not priced into the market, that is yet to be recognized by the market. And I don't know where you go and hide at this point. Again, you know where they're going to go hide? The 10-year treasury, I think, over time. Why is that? Because it'll be the safe asset. So if you told me the 10-year yield, the next 30 basis points are 140 or 2%, you say, Danny, what do you think the market does? I think the market gets killed if you tell me that the 10-year yield went down to 1.4%. Everyone knows the game is up. This market will not survive in a high rates. Why won't it survive? Because there's too much debt in the system, both on the corporate level, but more so on the government level, it'll slow things down too much. And so the ultimate black swan event here is the culmination of feeling that the Fed has not only has no idea what they're doing, they may know what their plan, what they want it to be, but that they've lost control. And they'll be forced, the minute they believe that they're going to be forced to overdo it, there's your stagflation, there's your slowing in the market. And there, you're making a mistake here at a 22 PE on this year's numbers. You're not making a mistake at 14. So I'm pretty bearish here. I'm sellers into strength, but again, sharpen the pencils, buy this, make a list of the stuff you like, because I think you're going to get an opportunity to buy stuff a lot lower here, Dan. Yeah, but you know, Danny, you just mentioned don't look at the 10-year to buy the Qs, and I think you're right in a way. And you know, the notion of when rates were going higher, let's go back a year, we saw a big correction in high growth, high valuation tech stocks. Well, here's the deal, man. We reversed that sell-off on Monday, and we saw a huge bounce in both the S&P and the NASDAQ. I think the NASDAQ was at uh, 5% off of those lows on Monday until today. And I'm looking around, man. I'm looking at Zoom right now, making new 52-week lows. I'm looking at all of these high valuation names, whether it's CrowdStrike doing the same or DraftKings. Roblox is down 8% snap at a 52-week low, down 7% today on a downgrade from Cowan. I didn't even know they're still in business. I mean, the list is going on and on and on. And so to your point about it not being done, it's not done with rates going lower right now. And you would have thought it was going to be the other way. Well, to quote the great slider for you Top Gun fans, out there. The list is long and distinguished. Now, I won't get into what he was talking about. It's neither here nor there. But, you know, real quick, just sort of amplify some of the comments Dan's made. And you know this, if you trade long enough, some of the biggest rallies, counter trend rallies are in when the market starts to turn to the downside. And I think, I think, I'm not suggesting I'm right, but I think that's what we're seeing right now, Danny. I agree. Listen, I was thinking of Don McLean. Bye bye, Miss American Pie. January made me shiver. I mean, I feel like we're literally, isn't that, isn't that song about a car going off of a cliff? It was actually, I think it was, he shivered in February, but that's okay. I February, get what you're man. saying. Anyway, I just, there's all kinds of songs popping in my head right now, but no, the mood of the market is not good. And listen, it is January and it, the market was literally down six out of seven days. So obviously it's not going to go down every day. I just think we are past the point. I think the meme stocks have blown up. Now they're just going to drip lower, right? And when the, the AMCs and the GameStops world, things that aren't trading on fundamentals are going to keep moving. They may have little bumps, but their trends are lower. That is set in stone. You can see it. Without a specific fundamental company event, that is what is going to happen. Everything else, you're in trading ranges and things like that. But you better know what you own here because I think this is going to be very ugly soon. Dan, Nathan, I know you have some thoughts. I mean, you've pointed out correctly 
again, we talk about this, but beneath the surface, under the hood, I mean, the damage being done, you mentioned Zoom, but even like a Salesforce.com, these are not small companies that have been taken out to the woodshed. Nobody cared about valuation six months ago. That seems to be the only thing people care about now. Today, I think, is a really important day, and I think it's interesting that Danny is kind of making this declaration that he's about as bearish as he's been in a long time, because again, like some of the names I just talked about, you talk about the meme stocks, you talk about what happened to crypto over the last few weeks, all of these pockets where there's unusual or had been unusual excitement among retail investors, they're just getting killed. The fact that we're seeing them down so much on a day like today after that bounce, where the the NASDAQ is still up 3.5%, but we're seeing tons of these names that are basically back at those lows from Monday. So to me, I think you have the potential of just these sorts of names dragging ultimately the mega caps down. And I'll just say the last battle fought, and we're going to talk about it with your buddies, Danny, but look at Tesla down 4% today. And I know that guy, you had that call down to 900. If that thing goes through 1,000 and is headed to 900, I think it takes a lot, a lot of mega caps with it. I'll make two comments on that. Tesla is the godfather of the meme stocks, and we have a couple of godfather references coming up soon. And just saying that makes guy go up in his chair. But when that breaks, then I'll know that the market's over. It's funny. The other day, the market was getting killed. Tesla really wasn't. I said to myself, nope, not yet, because that's the one that has to go, because that has everything you want wrapped into one. But let me make another comment. Can I shift outside of the U.S. for a moment? Please, shift. All these things that are going on. So Country Garden is the largest property developer in China, right? They're bigger than Evergrande. All of a sudden- Look at that thing. Look at look at the bonds are trading down, you know, towards 70 cents. Now the stocks basically trading at new lows right now. Those issues are still with us. Let's move over to Europe for a second. I know Turkey isn't the largest economy in the world, but you are seeing what can happen in an economy when inflation runs hot. What are they doing? They're piling into Bitcoin right now. That doesn't solve anything. But my point is that when does Bitcoin become an existential threat or when does it become systemic? When you have countries like El Salvador and Turkey, yes, not big on either count, but those type things that are occurring, that is not stability. That just adds a lot more volatility into the global markets. And so I'm watching these things occur. Yes, I'm bearish on the US, more on a valuation perspective and the Fed making a mistake. But then I look, how are the international markets doing? What's going on? It's just a little bit nerve wracking everywhere right now. So I just wanted to mention that we're so focused here in the US, but those have impacts, you know, maybe not direct, but they do. No question about it. And on top of all of that, we've seen, and listen, Dan Nathan had a great call. When lumber, when everybody was talking about lumber seven, eight months ago, Dan said, you know, it just doesn't feel right to me. This is going to be a mean reversion. And he was spot on. Lumber gave the entire move to the upside back. Well, here we are. Lumber's back on its horse. By the way, aluminum making all-time high, nickel, copper, all these different things. And that plays into exactly the things that we've been talking about all along, that this notion that somehow things are going to improve in a short period of time, these things don't sort themselves out that quickly. And I think inflation is a concern. I mentioned that because crude oil, which took a huge leg lower on that Friday after Thanksgiving, obviously the Omicron news coupled with the release from the SPR, you saw a huge move in crude. I think almost a 30% move to the downside. Well, here we are once again, north of $80 in WTI. I'll say this, I'm not suggesting I'm right. I do think we're going to see triple-digit oil in the near future. I thought that we'd see at the end of 2021. I was wrong, but I think it's on. It's coming to a theater near you. Listen, Barron's is a great periodical. They have great writers. I feel like they've become a little bit too bullish over the last several years, but that's just my opinion. That being said, the cover story last week was about that exact thing, Guy. It was about it's time, it's time for the commodities, right? And once this inflation starts to bake itself in and becomes a permanent part of people's thought process of how they invest – it's self-fulfilling that these things will work. Notably, they kind of didn't really mention gold in that. We'll talk about that with my big short boys when they come back on. That'll be a subject to talk about, but it's true. And so if people want to find a home during inflation, what might work, it's that sector. And it's been underloved for a long time. And just continuing this commodity theme and something that I've been concerned about and we've talked about, the geopolitical risk out there to me is staggering. Now, I've said for a while, I think the situation between China and Taiwan will once again rear its ugly head after the Olympics, which, by the way, are coming up in a few weeks, number one. But number two, don't discount what's going on, again, Russia, Ukraine, and the nat gas story on the back of that, what's going on in Western Europe, and subsequently, what could potentially go on here with home heating prices and natural gas prices, Danny Moses. Yeah, listen, it's one thing to invest in commodities. It's another to be a consumer who doesn't have an investment, but is eating those costs going in. And I think nat gas prices, I know they're very volatile and 
I'm not a gas futures trader, but I believe they were up 14% in one day. I mean, those type, I know you get the swings because you got a cold weather burst. So you got now weather watchers that are trying to trade, you know, Beaks, where's Beaks? We got orange juice everywhere. We got everything going on here. And so that is another scary thing. And speaking of what is kind of counterintuitive here is kind of how well the builders are still performing. I get the whole secular shift. And, and I agree with Dan's point. And Niedermeyer, Homestock's dead. And eventually, this runs its course. But it seems like they still have a lot of tailwinds. But I'm kind of thinking of the builders here, as I did retail late last year. Great fundamentals, great place to hide right now. It's always a sexy group to trade and own. But how much upside can this group have from here, if the Fed is actually going to raise rates and mortgage rates continue to make new highs here, Dan? You know, it's, it's interesting when you talk about a safe place to be, and, and that makes sense. I mean, like one of the things that I say would say that clearly stuck, you know, from this pandemic is just this great migration. And so that's something that maybe has some legs. And if you look at the outperformance and some of the home improvement names in retail, I think that's important. We do have mortgage rates, I think just got back to the 30 year at the highest level it's been since March of 2020. Might that be the sort of headwind in the near term? I'm not sure, especially when you're seeing that affordability in both rents and in purchases are getting really difficult. So I don't know, man, I feel like the consumer has been buffeted. And that's the one thing that we can all agree on at this point. But I'm starting to see some kind of kinks in the armor here a little bit. And one of them was this past week, Lululemon, which is a premium brand. They pre-announced, they gave disappointing guidance. And the stock is just, it looks like one of these high growth SaaS stocks that's massively being re-rated. And so I think that's really important to keep an eye on. Another one is Starbucks. Have you guys seen this thing? I mean, this stock has not made a new high since the summer. It was trading in July above 125 and now it's trading at levels it hasn't traded since last March at about 103. So I just feel like that we're about to get to anniversary some of the really difficult comps going forward and you know it's not just going to be high growth tech it's going to be in a lot of other areas that get re-rated. And Dan I, I'll just echo that I think people want to find a place to put their money in the markets and for the most part listen we still haven't sold off that much this market is still technically in a, in a bull phase right? so to speak, but they will run to a sector that they think has some type of fundamental growth behind it, or at least benefit of the doubt. And the home builders can be sexy for a period of time. You know, other sectors can be sexy for a period of time. But I feel like those are borrowed investments to a degree. I mean, listen, you got to own the sector a little bit, have some exposure. But look at energy. If you're telling me if you guys are correct, and I think you may be here on the next $20 move in oil, is it up or down? These energy stocks in this sector, and we'll talk about this with Porter and Vinny when I still are underowned, right? And there's a ton of room here to the upside, I believe. So why isn't that one catching fire like these other sectors are, in my opinion? Well, you teased it, so we'll speak to it. We got the great Porter Collins and Vinny Daniel coming up. I will say that Danny said something about Godfather. So in my head, I'm trying to figure out how he's going to weave a Godfather narrative. But we're going to find out real quick. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. Once again, we are joined by Vinny Daniel and Porter Collins. I love these guys, and I know we, I'll say it, we fuck around. I hate the Mets, and he hates the Yankees, but I love these guys. I do. And I'm going to say this, Vinny, and I want to hear your thoughts on this. I think in 10 years from now, we're going to look back and say that line of demarcation, it all turned when Steven Matz thwarted the New York Mets and went elsewhere. That pissed off Stevie Cohen. That anger set him up to do everything he subsequently has done. That might be the day that all Met fans look back on. Thoughts on that? I kind of like that. I really didn't even think that the Mets' lack of transaction was what did it for Steve. I actually think it was finally he got sick and tired of kowtowing to MLB and said, screw it. It's my team. Can't take it away from me. 
watch what I do. And now it's game on. And it's game on for a long, long time. You know what always happens, though, Vinny? I'm sure there's going to be a strike now because the Mets are finally in position. Well, great. They probably wouldn't even play baseball this year, for all we know. That's the problem. That's the issue. In the past, the Wilpons would spend some money. They get Johan Santana. It wouldn't work. And they go into their hole for five years. If this doesn't work, he's going to continue to spend money. Well, Porter, something that has worked, and I know you two are both fans of On the Tape, and I'll mention this again. The man you sat next to for many years is 25-4 and four in his NFL picks. Just think about that for a second, Porter. I mean, that is ridiculous. Could you have fathomed back in the day when you were trying to figure out the housing market that Danny Moses would be able to do what he's done this year? Vinny and I were talking about the theme of today is going to be a reversion to the mean. And Danny is just waiting. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's going to be a tough 22. But they were with me many times when I would gamble over the weekend and come in with a long face. What happened? Oh, crush this and the other. So it's an anomaly, but I'm going to write it as long as I can, Guy. And I love having you as the president of my fan club because it gives me warm and fuzzy. So I appreciate you. I think it's great that you guys are coming on because I feel, and I, again, I'm not suggesting I'm right, but it feels as though things are turning here in the market. Now, if you look at the S&P 500, you're going to say to yourself, yeah, what are you talking about? But it just feels different to me right now, Vinny. And Danny said earlier that he's as bearish as maybe he's ever been. I'm just curious as to your thoughts. We're probably not as bearish as Danny. We're really bullish on the opportunity set that exists out there. Let's start with the top down. The Fed no longer has your back. And that's a big, big deal. And that's been our theme for the past, say, two or three months. What does that mean? Well, we have too much inflation. We have a pretty decent U.S. economy. Corporations are delevered. Consumers are delevered. The Fed has no choice but to tighten liquidity and raise rates. Not that they're doing it right now. They're actually still accommodative. But the rate of change is going to be negative. So what does that mean? To us, that means almost every single highly valued price to revenues narrative meme story is a negative. And we've been on the short side of that. At the same time, on the value side, the economy's fine. So we are finding a lot of things to do on the long side as well. So I was just reading your guys' letter, and I used to love when we wrote the letter, because Porter would come up with some ideas, I would, and then Vinny would write it and come up with a matrix, blue pill, red pill, all kinds of things. So Porter, I saw in there Voldemort, what's happening right now, but what's your take right now? I guess you guys think for the first time in a long time that things are, quote, shortable. And it probably dovetails with what Vinny's saying, the market's kind of lost its mo. What are you seeing and what kind of shots are you guys taking? You don't have to talk about anything that's not in the letter necessarily, but what are you seeing opportunistically right now? You know, we were going back through looking at 1999, right? Trying to figure out what popped the bubble and all this and what made things change. And Amazon is arguably the greatest growth story in our lifetimes, right? And it went from 100 times price to sales to four, where it is now. And so the timing's really hard. And so what we basically said is that the Fed's no longer got your back. They're going to tighten. They really overcooked inflation way too much. 7% is just way too hot even for them. And so we're going back to a regime where the Fed is going to tighten and these things are shortable. That's the easy way to do it. And this is a growth to value rotation. So Porter, on the point that you just made, going back to the dot-com implosion, at the time, no one knew it was actually happening. Everyone knew that there was a bubble. Everyone knew that the valuations were unsustainable. There was a lot of companies that probably didn't deserve to be in the public markets, that sort of thing. But I got to really take a step back here and what's going on. And we've spent a lot of time on the podcast over the last six to nine months really pointing out some of the devastation that's gone on in the NASDAQ right now. And there was a quote that I read the other day when the NASDAQ was at its lows on Monday, more than 40% of the NASDAQ were down more than 50% from their 52-week highs. And we know this has a lot to do with valuation. And I'm just looking at our boards right now. We're Thursday into the close as we're taping. I am looking at, you ready for this? Roblox down 9%. Unity down 8%. MongoDB down 9%. ServiceNow down 8%. Guys, I can keep on going here. Zscaler down 7%. Zoom making a 52-week low right now down 6%. Zoom, this is really important. It's got a $52 billion market cap, and it trades at 10 times sales. Now, that was a much bigger number. We could go on and on and on. 
Snowflake has a $90 billion market cap. It's down 25% from its recent highs, trades at 45 times sales. So I actually think we have a lot of stocks with big market caps that have to go the way of Zoom. And maybe that 10 times sales is the number where these stocks start to bottom out. But I'm just curious, A, on that, and then B, what do you think it means for the broader market here? Because in the 25 years that I've been in the business, you cannot see a pocket of enthusiasm like this that works its way through institutions and retail investors have this sort of negative performance on a relative basis and not have further repercussions. Keep going back to only thing people bought for the last 10 plus years, and especially recently, is growth tech. And you have all these new investors in the market. You think about all the young kids, the Robin Hood accounts. They don't own Bank America do not own ExxonMobil. They own tech and they own all this stuff. And it was a dollar and a dream. And they don't know where the bottom is. They don't know what the valuation on this stuff is. When they're down, they're going to sell. And so I kind of think these things, my guess is to go lower than you think they do. Amazon bottomed out at one time sales, greatest growth company ever. And so I'm not interested in buying the dip on them here. Just my personal opinion. I just think you got to be careful. We were looking at Roku recently. Roku went from, in 2017, it was trading at half of sales. It went to 35 times sales, and now is at 15. Does Roku look like TiVo did? Go the way of the DVR? I think it does. Well, I'm curious, Vinny, what you think, because you just mentioned Roku. Roku was a $490 stock just a few months ago, and now it's $170 stock. So that's how you get that price to sales multiple compressed like that. But the question is, does it grow into where it is right now? If I told you Shopify is a $140 billion market cap, and I think in 10 years it could be worth a trillion dollars, but it has to grow into that valuation, it has to do it from much lower levels, I think is what you're saying, Porter. I'm just curious what you think, Vinny, because there's going to be plenty of TiVos, but there's also going to be the next Amazons from this trash heap. Oh, completely. However, as you know, and you've said this on the podcast, way back when in 99, even Amazon was down. 80 to 85%. And the thing that concerns me a little bit is we see the carnage on the tape, particularly in the SMIG cap growth names, but the Qs, what people truly own, which is the mega caps, I think the Qs are only down six, 7% from its all time high. It's nothing. And that's the thing that concerns me is that if those go, I think we have a bigger issue on our hands. And I think it was one day last week where I was saying to my friends, and it was the day when I think the NASDAQ hit its low, I go, Today's the day where your friends who are not on Wall Street are going to call you up and ask you what's happening because they finally saw what happened to their names that they own. And usually at this point in time, guy, you'll enjoy this. You get back to somebody on the Fed is going to come out on the tape and provide some dovish statement that's going to help the markets go back up. I don't think we get that right now. I'm not saying we won't get that down 15%. Leo Brainerd, who was the most dovish person in the Fed or one of the most dovish people in the Fed spoke in front of Congress today telling us that she too is on the hawkish side. So I don't think you're getting your air cover at least anytime soon. And you go back to Tesla, we've been dead wrong on it for a lot of years, but they've done a decent job of executing recently. And problem is, it's just way too darn expensive. It's a car company, plain and simple. People think they can do all these magic things and data. It's a car company, just like Ford, what have they been executing on? I'm just, I'm just curious. What, what was it? They, they actually have sold cars. And oh, they did. Okay, you okay. make money. Yeah, but the stock's just too expensive. I know. I went. I said something positive. You cannot say one positive word. I'm just trying to be objective. <laughs> but anyway, it's just too expensive. It's a Pavlovian response. You say the word, and Danny's like he starts to sweat. It's the most remarkable thing I've ever seen. I don't know what happened. You were scarred by Elon Musk at some point. Guy, they did fake the roof reveal. They did fake the Cybertruck and they did fake the semi. That's what I'm looking for out of you guys. Thank you. <laughs> I want to talk about banks for a second. I know it's not top of mind, but it's always in your mind. And I know Porter, obviously, more years than anyone looking at the banks for say and Vinny on the credit. So credit, obviously, is still pretty good. But there's a lot of variable debt out there on the consumer balance sheet that will be impacted as the Fed starts to raise rates. And I know there's a seasonal aspect to trying to find that and do that. But there's a couple sectors out there that I think will be directly impacted. And we've seen a lot of cycles together. And I want to hammer in on this buy now, pay later group for a minute because it's pretty new. People think it's sexy. They think these are fintech companies, but they're just lending vehicles. 
maybe start with Vinny and kind of what are your thoughts here on this buy now, pay later group? How is it muddying the waters a little bit in the credit area? Let's start with the positive first in terms of financials. No one owns this group. Nobody. They hate it so much. PMs universally hate the financials because that means that the growth stocks aren't going to work. And the fundamentals from the financials perspective are fantastic. Rates are going up for the first time in a long time. Credit's perfect. And capital levels are at all-time high. Reserves are close to an all-time high. And what's not to like about these things? And if the Fed does indeed hike 100 basis points, consensus estimates are way too low. But I'll flip it on the consumer credit. So I want to hear Vinny's take on it because there will be an impact, not right away, but over time and what that's going to look like. Because Porter, there's been a lot of reserve releases for these banks for a long time. And they may still happen. It probably happened in Q4, but we're going to see a shift. And when that occurs, it's a large tailwind that's no longer going to earnings. And maybe that's built into estimates. I don't know. Vinny, what are your thoughts on the consumer? I echo Porter sentiment. It is a bit early. I'll give you a little bit of numbers. And if you remember, Danny, way back when, when we were at Seawolf, I used to say this. Whenever revolving credit card data was growing faster than nominal GDP, we have a problem. Right now, credit card debt, and I just looked at it, is growing at about 6.5% year over year. That's November data. That's below nominal GDP. So I'm not necessarily worried about U.S. consumer credit. The consumer, on average, is not particularly levered up. Now, what your concerns are, which is at the BMPL stage, so to me, I think a buy now, pay later. It's just another type of loan. And it's generally speaking, another type of loan to the subprime consumer. Those companies in particular are growing like a weed. They're growing extremely fast. So they're the ones that are extending credit, in my opinion, to borrowers that are going to have problems a lot quicker than the overall US consumer. So when you're parsing out, who would you be long? Who would you be short? I would be relatively constructive on old school legacy credit card companies, think Cat One. We don't own it, but I think they're going to do fairly well. But on the other hand, anybody who grew really fast, and you've been talking about the buy now, pay laters, the affirms, the unsecured lenders like Upstarts, those are the ones I would be concerned about because I think they're the ones that first are going to have major issues. You know, everyone talks about Warren Buffett's letter, and I'm being serious now. I would stack your letter up against that in terms of the thoughtfulness in it. And one of the points you guys made is what happens if the Fed blinks, like the Fed blinked somewhere between October and December of 2018? So this is just my thoughts, but I want to hear yours, Porter, then obviously Vinny as well. I think the Fed blinked then. It was a completely different set of circumstances. Inflation was not a concern by any stretch of the imagination. And Jerome Powell, early in his tenure, was getting browbeat by the Trump administration. And oh, by the way, the market went down 19.9% in two months' time. I think that's why they blinked then. But circumstances are much different now, Porter, which is why I would submit they're not going to blink. I think it's damn the torpedoes full speed ahead here. There's a lot of things going on. I think the Fed's painted into a corner. And you think about inflation levels are highest in 40 years. Fed's accommodative stance is most accommodative ever. The economy is, on a nominal basis, growing gangbusters, and rates are at zero. And so I think the Fed's really in a tough spot, and they don't want the equity markets to go down. And so what do you do? And I think that they're talking hawkishly now, obviously, but they're going to hike. Whether they do QT, we'll see about that. I think that they might change the rules for the banks, allow the banks to buy more treasuries just because someone needs to buy them. But the other thing that people aren't talking about is that the Fed's blinking, but the ECB starting to blink too, and the BOJ starting to blink too. And so you have pretty vicious cocktail out there of bearishness. And so that's our biggest concern. I think that's an interesting point. We talked about this earlier. What's going on with the US dollar? Why in this environment is the dollar going lower? It's because other central banks are now acting in kind as well. It's all relative thing. And Vinny, I'm just interested in terms of your thoughts Melissa Lee asked me a question on the show a couple of weeks ago. If the market's going to down 15%, they're going to be forced to stop. And I would say, you know what? They shouldn't even be focused on the market. And by the way, Gorman of Morgan Stanley pretty much said the same thing to Wilford Frost in an interview. Like, the market should not be in their purview, Vinny. You know, Guy, I don't want to guess up your head a little bit, but when we were writing the annual review, I was actually thinking of you as I was writing it because I was pissing all over the Fed. I agree with you, but the problem is, is I don't trust them. The only thing I would say, and I've been telling 
a lot of people is at this point in time, I don't really care what's going to make them blink. It's either going to be a slower economy or the S&P down 15%. And we're not there yet. When we get there, then I think we have a decision to make based upon what we're going to do. History would suggest that they're going to blink. I would love to think that you're going to be correct, but I'm not confident. Just so we're clear, everybody listening, I think blinking we use twice, but blinking we're thinking when the Fed actually does realizes that they may have overshot or caused a problem in the market, which I think is inevitable. But on that point, I don't know if anyone got a chance, I think Vinny and Porter, I know you did, to read the article in The Atlantic about Honig and get a book coming out. And it talked about the obsession that Ben Bernanke developed with the stock market, which we used to say on our desk was his precious. And he basically used the market as his third mandate, actually as his top mandate, but as the third wheel of what he was looking at as far as jobs and inflation, but it always was the stock market. And if that's not there, it'll always be there because it has a, you could argue it has a wealth effect and no one likes to feel that kind of pain. But to Guy's point, this time feels a little bit different in the sense of you got now outspoken Fed officials saying that we should not only raise rates, not only accelerate taper, but then to not reinvest the runoff and let this balance sheet run off over a period of time. That last part, I don't think happens in 2022 because of the first part. I'd love to get your guys' thoughts on that. The one thing is what's different this time? One is clearly we have inflation that even the CPI is picking up, and that's a big deal. But think about what that causes. That causes Main Street America to be paying significantly higher pricing all over the place, which they then complain to their local politicians which then complain to their national politicians, which then complain to the Federal Reserve to say, do something. And there's an election coming up in 2022. That's the big difference. So right now, the most important thing for politicians is inflation, not the value of the stock market. So that's the Fed's orders is get this down. No matter what you do, get this down. So every time they speak, it's gonna be, they have to be inflation fighting. To me, Danny, that's the big difference. And that will be, I think the statement until either A, inflation comes down or the markets come down, which is actually going to create less inflation. How quickly do you guys think that we're going to see some of these inflationary pressures in some of the places that are really hindering consumers as they pay at the pump or they're paying for housing or they're paying for whatever some of the goods and services that we've seen big spikes in? Don't you guys expect some of the big things to abate at some point in the not so distant future? And to your point, the timing of the election could end up working out pretty well for the Dems right now. That's just one thought, because if you do see some of this stuff come back in pretty hard in late spring into the summer, then all of a sudden you're probably going to have the stock market that's reflecting that. And it's going to be okay with tighter monetary policy at that point, too. So everything could be lining up towards the end of the summer into the fall. One of the things that allowed us to have such a good year last year was we were early on the inflation call. We bought basically every inflation asset and it worked except for gold. But I think I'm a little bit more bearish on inflation. I think that COVID's over at this point and you're going to have a giant reopening. You're going to have travels back. You're going to have all these gasoline spends going to be up a lot. And so I don't think energy prices come in, first of all. The owner's rent equivalent in terms of housing, that's not going to come down for a little while. And the supply chain's all messed up because the China ports are closed at this point. So I'm a little bit more bearish. Everyone on planet Earth expects inflation to come down and it will because of base effects. But I'm a little bit more bearish on inflation at this point, higher for longer, put it that way. I'm not going to let you get away with talking about inflation and pricing without talking about the used car market. So I know you guys have done some work on a name we talk about often on this podcast, which is Carvana. And names like that, that are really just a financial engineered company that really have nothing to do with buying and selling used cars. It has to do with financing. And we always joke about our Harley Davidson time in 2007 and eight when we didn't matter that they were selling motorcycles. It was just the financing engine. What are your thoughts on companies like Carvana and Carvana itself? I'm just going to play with your statement a little bit in terms of, in many respects, Carvana is the T2000 model of CarMax. So they do sell used cars. They do finance a lot of their cars. CarMax does as well. The main difference between the two is that Carvana is doing all of their stuff online and CarMax has dealerships. The other thing that's a major difference that you were getting at is that Carvana sells all of their loans to third parties, and I'll put third parties in quotes for people, at material gains, which makes up the majority of what will be their profits. Okay. I don't view it as negatively as you do, is that all they do is finance. That said, I think the issue for Carvana 
and CarMax, and for a lot of the used car dealers, is that you had a massive pull forward from COVID, which increased, I think for the first time ever, used car pricing actually went up in value and it still is up in value. So I think the biggest issue for those guys is going to be the hangover effects associated with COVID as the OEMs start revving their engines completely and they start selling more new cars versus used cars. In addition to that, like you said, on the finance side, they're going to have a little bit of a struggle because as you sell gain on sale, the cost of capital is important. So as a result, their gain on sale margins are going to decline. Vinny, you were with Eisman in 1998 up on the podium saying the following eight stocks are going to zero. One of those was Ugly Duckling, was it not? Who ran Ugly Duckling? I was actually Meredith. I was more on the subprime home equity side. Whatever. You were on the team. You were on the dream team. Was Ugly Duckling not one of those companies? Correct. Okay. Who ran Ugly Duckling? Mr. Garcia. Ernie Garcia, the second. Correct. Yes. And his, so, okay. I just want to make sure that we're dealing in the same people. So I'm not crazy. Okay. It's fine. You can couch your stuff. That's fine. I will say this, Danny. And I think this is important, not just for Carvana, but for all these super growth names. I think the most important thing was the Fed for them and the fact that they had a zero cost of equity capital. So all of these companies, whether it's Carvana, whether it's Zoom, whether it's Lucid, whether it's Tesla, God bless them. No God blessing them. Sorry. They had the ability to lose money forever and investors don't care. Well, this is one of the big things about Voldemort coming back. All of a sudden, your cost of equity capital goes up. If this continues, you might actually need to make a profit. Investors might say, I want you to show to make money. Now, once you do that, all of a sudden you reduce your expenditures so you could show to make a profit. And then revenue growth slows down. And then all of a sudden, all those multiples that you're looking at that are based off 2030, 2035 are completely fucking wrong. And then these companies come cascading down even further. That's the spirit I'm looking for, Vinny. That's the passion. I got you. I knew I'd give it to you. That's what happened in 99 was because these companies had to start showing profits. And the minute they had to start showing profits, the revenue expectations came cascading down. Can I ask a quick question of you three? Because this is fascinating. Do you guys think you're as edgy today? And I'm asking, I'll go down the list. I'm going to ask Danny first, as you were back in the day, or have you sort of, have you mellowed with age, Danny Moses? When the three of us were together, I'm sure they've been in therapy. It took a couple of years of being, being away from them to regain their center focus. And I think they've done a great job doing that. That being said, I think now we're talking a lot more. And I think we've all become more objective about the markets in the last three to four years, being away, particularly from the financials, but being away from the day-to-day trading and trying to hedge and long, short and beta neutral portfolios and all that bullshit that, by the way, was also brought on because of the Fed having zero rates for so long and so much money in the system. That stuff allowing, I can speak for Porter and Vinny, and then I'll let them talk for myself, to let your brain be more relaxed and find the opportunities and not have to worry so much about what is the market going to do on a day-to-day basis and focus on more bottom-up fundamental stuff. But I'll let them talk because they've been crushing it ever since they dumped me. I like to think I've calmed down as I've gotten older, but we're just as angry as we've ever been. And we just still get pissed off on a daily basis. So yes, I would say we're just as edgy as we've ever been. And the thing is, is you know, having been in markets a couple decades now, stop learning, you're dead. And so there's different cycles. There's different stuff going on every day. That's one of the reasons that Vinny and I we said to each other how much we love this job. We're just so lucky to be able to do this. And it's just so intellectually curious and just stimulating every day. But yes, we're still pissed off. Guy, when you follow religiously the Jets and the Mets and a value sector like we used to, such as financials, you have no choice but to be angry. You're like forever angry. So the one good thing that has helped us is back half of our investing career, which is recently, We're just looking at different sectors, which has definitely reduced the anger quotient. But I'll turn on the two, Bill. You give me five minutes to watch something on TV associated with markets. I'll be angry pretty quickly. I love it. No, look, you know, there's so many similarities. Look, Porter is an even keeled. You look at Porter, you think of like some 1970s movie about crew and, you know, Europe and then London and Oxford Blues, Oxford Blues. But Vinny, you and I are hauntingly similar. I totally dig it. I mean, we're the same person. We just have different fandom. But I'm going to ask you an interesting question here. I want you to think about this before you answer it. I think, and I would submit, the worst thing that happened to Cubs fans was the Cubs winning the World Series. And that sounds fucking crazy, but it took away their whole foundation. 
that loser mentality that each year they got it out for us. If the Jets were to win the Super Bowl, as much as you think you would love that, do you think that would somehow be it for you? It would have been released from it, but you lose that edge that you have by being a Jet fan. Hold on. We have a person in this group, Danny Moses, who is a lifelong Georgia Bulldogs fan. 41 years later, they finally win the national championship. Does he look any different to you? It's too early. Listen, I know what you're saying. Guy, did he stop shorting the cues? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. He yelled at me because I wasn't angry enough on Carvana. He just won a national championship. And he was throwing tables in the pool from what I hear. Yeah. Because Bennett probably made a mistake or two or Kirby screwed up, right? I will say this. Well, Jets never have a chance of winning a Super Bowl, so that's not even a realistic question. But I will say that Georgia winning, I feel like there's something's been lifted off of my shoulders. It's a very weird feeling. That being said, I'll root for him as hard as I ever have. But there is something, Guy, I will say at least personally that – now I feel like I've checked the box. It's been 41 years. And Vinny and Porter, no. I mean, Porter's a big Georgia fan, too. He went to Brown, so he didn't have a real football team. Like, I didn't have one at Emory, but my roots are in Athens. But still, there is something about that. And I got to tell you, if Tesla goes to 200, that'll be the equivalent of Georgia winning the national championship. Let me just say that. So, and I think, I think you know, Porter may rank that the same way. I'm not sure. But anyway, moving on. So, guys, a couple of things I want to hit on before I'm going to rot, and then I'm going to give my NFL picks with you on, which will probably make me lose for sure because I can never win in the office with you guys on our pools. We'll talk about maybe gold versus Bitcoin. I know we're not going to harp on gold a lot here. It just sits there. I feel like one day it'll have its meme day where it'll go. But as you see people use Bitcoin, and we talked earlier in the show about Turkey and El Salvador, and it starts to become more and more systemic around the globe, I think, the longer that this thing goes on. And when I say this thing, I'm not calling Bitcoin or Ethereum a fraud, and Dan can certainly chime in here. I'm just saying that how real is this asset in your guys' opinion? And you did bring up Bitcoin versus gold in your letter, so I'd love to get your thoughts on that. I'm a bigger gold lover than Vinny is, so I don't think it has to be an either or. I think they're two separate asset classes. I see gold as someone on Twitter is going nuts and how terrible of an asset it is, but since 2000, it's 10x, and people forget that. It's just everything moves in different steps. I sort of think that it's your insurance policy. I personally like it better than cash. Cash deposits aren't earning you anything. And when something bad happens, I feel good about it. And you look at what Russia's doing, buying gold. You look at what China's doing, buying gold. I just think over time, it's going to be a winning asset. And it really gives a sort of heft to our portfolio. If you're managing money, you have a barbell of stuff all the time. You have some speculative stuff. You have some income stuff. You have some growth. You have some shorts. And you have gold instead of cash. That's how we look at it. To a large extent, gold, and I guess we'll see Bitcoin, is really the asset that you want to hold if you truly do not believe or not liking the way our governments and our central bankers are controlling fiscal fiat money. So to us, that's the reason why we have chosen gold or alternative currencies like gold and Bitcoin. My issues with Bitcoin is not in how it's philosophically thought about and constructed, I'm scared of the underlying shadow leverage associated with the entire ecosystem. And so I worry that if markets do go south and if the feds doesn't have your back, I don't want to be there at this point in time if we're going to have a deleveraging effect in the crypto space. Combined with the fact that I don't believe the regulators truly want this hanging around as an alternative method of payment globally, not just the U.S. globally. I'm with Porter on this one, by the way. I say it all the time, and this is not meant to be glib, but gold's not a story until it is one. And there have been central banks around the world that have been hoarding the physical metal. It has not manifested itself in the price yet. But when I say yet, I'm emphasizing the yet. Now, I want to read something again from your letter, Danny Moses. I know you're going to indulge me here for a second. In five years, the Corleone family will be completely legitimate. Kay asked Michael, you know, Michael told Kay that, and you know, that was eight, nine years or so ago. You wonder whether Michael Corleone, played by the immortal Al Pacino, truly believed the line he served to his girlfriend, now wife. Michael's words do well to summarize our optimistic view of the cannabis sector, Vinny. So give it to me, because as you, I'm sure, are, I could play every single role in that movie, both of those movies. Notice I don't say all three. Flawlessly. Including Apollonia, by the way. Please indulge me, Vinny. <laughs> well, I mean, 
in many respects, our initial foray into the cannabis space came from Danny way back when, a few years ago. We invested it in the cannabis space in the form of two privates. But as you guys know, and Danny has been speaking about it last year, I think the MSOS underperformed the S&P something to the tune of 50-55%. So to us, we started looking at that sheer alone and say, is there something to do here? We called Danny. We started listening to a bunch of different folks. And we said, wow, the opportunity set here, and we listed it in our review, but the opportunity set here is so massive if you just extend your duration beyond, say, a month or two or a quarter. And if you just look out five years and say, this is going to be an enormous legal business. And right now we get a chance as Seawolf, because we're not truly institutional, to invest in an asset class before all the institutions can truly get in, before the banking system can get in, before it's truly legal at prices that are, let's say, five to six times EBITDA or cash flow, I'll use cash flows. And you just have to sit and wait until we have catalysts. But Danny could explain, as Danny's been explaining the catalysts far better than I can on the podcast. So I'll let Danny rip. No, I was going to say, I agree with what Vinny wrote 100%. I've helped them get into space for better, for worse. I think they've done actually okay in the space, but to have their brains looking at it tells you the quality of people that once this thing becomes more mainstream, that we'll be looking at it and real investors that are going to do the real work on the balance sheets so forth, and on the ratios, what this can really mean for the sector. So the fact that Vinny and Porter are spending any time on the sector, to me, makes me even more bullish on this thing. So it's great to have brains like yours. And believe me, these managements and these cannabis companies need to think like you guys do and like we do in terms of how to think about growth in their companies and so forth. So fully agreed. I want to hear Porter's thoughts, but I want to interject the following. In my opinion, and I've said this before on the podcast, I'll say it again, and I know I will offend people, but At my age, I just turned 58, by the way. I don't really necessarily give a shit. But in my estimation, there are two kinds of people in the world. They're Italians, and they're people that want to be Italian. I'm looking at you, Porter. So if you were to be a character in the movie The Godfather, my sense is you would be Tom Hagen. Is that an accurate assessment? That's a very accurate assessment. Even keeled, part of the family, but one removed. And Vinny, I'm going to say this. You know, A lot of people would think you're Santino. You're not. You're calculating like Michael. You are Michael Corleone. Oh, God, you're, you're really making this podcast special for me right now. And you know, if you went Fredo on me, I would have to go. I no. Would, I, no. I would have to go Chris no. Cuomo uh, you on know, you. Come on. you got to give me more credit. As you know, as I think most of our listeners know, that there is no greater insult than calling somebody that. Calling you Santino would not do justice to your intellect. I think you have the hair trigger of a Santino, but you have the cunning of a Michael, and you're more Michael than Sonny. I mean, the funny thing is you guys make out this nice, calm, collected person. I I generally can be more volatile than both Vinny and Danny combined sometimes. Agreed, especially after a night out with his rowing buddies. Yes, I agree, 100%. (laughs) Not only that, in the Seawolf office, quite often Porter was the more volatile of the three of us. I know that's hard to believe because he's so cool, calm, and collective right now, but he got quite angry throwing fake volcanoes here and there. So it's pretty good. Well, uh, speaking of the Corleone family, as that son of a bitch senator, I mean, Geary was a, I won't say it here, but you know what I think of Geary. I mean, not a good person, by the way. I love the way he just sort of insulted the family. He got his, by the way, obviously, midway through the movie. We won't get into great detail. But Danny Moses does something that we call rip off the tape. We've bastardized it down to rot. But Danny, I think you have something you want to say here. Why the guys are here, I think it'd be really interesting. Well, one of my favorite characters was from Godfather 2, Frankie Pantangelo. And so, as you know, he was going to testify in front of the Senate and give up Michael Corleone until Frankie's brother, Vincenzo, speaking of Vinny, was brought into the Senate chambers and he looked back and he denied any knowledge of anything to do, oh, pickle business, that and the other. So that's kind of that. I want to talk about Gary Ginsler for a second, because actually, Frankie Pantangelo, Ginsler, 10 years, a little gray hair. I got to stop you for a second. If you say Pantangelo one more time, I'm going to reach through the fucking screen and rip your neck out. Frankie Pantangeli, and it was Vincenzo, and he came here of his own accord, his own expense. He didn't say a fucking word in court, but when his brother looked, he realized that he was about to do something very wrong. So say it one more time to quote Samuel Jackson in Pulp Fiction. Oh, yeah, we did some business together with his father. Oh, I remember. Yeah, Frankie Pantangeli. So Gary Ginsler pulled a Pantangeli. So 
he kind of looks like him a little bit if he was a little bit heavier and a little bit older, a little more facial hair. But that being said, so I go back to this Barron's article last year and Ginsler coming out with his game plan, what he was going to do about payment for order flow and market structure and all this shit. Comes out of the AMC GameStop investigation pretty much with nothing, no slap on the wrist, nothing's done nothing. He goes with Sorkin on CNBC on Monday. I'm watching the markets. I'm watching Ginsler. I didn't think it would be market moving anyway. No talk of market structure. Top five things for 22. No mention of payment for order flow. Nothing. Wasn't in the top five. And that, to me, was done for a reason. Maybe people at Citadel have his brother locked down. I don't know what's going on. But look what Virtu stock has done, what it did that day, and what it's done since then, okay? The only update Robinhood had in the last 672 was on that day or whatever it was, okay? He has completely caved. Who got to him? I don't know. But this goes back to the bullshit that Vinnie Porter and I and all of us have to deal with all the time about when you leave Washington, where do you go? What job do you have lined up? What speaking engagements do you have lined up? I now have zero faith, and I'm an idiot for thinking there anything would happen to payment for order flow in the first place. I'm not short Robin Hood right now. You could have been short on it on that theme when it was at 35, but whatever. I'm pissed. And so I'm rotting on the fact that Ginsler has now, something's happened. His brother's locked away. I don't know what's going on. That's my rot today. So you know the issue was... They had Ken Griffin waiting for him in the lobby. Exactly. Something was happening. They had me waiting in the lobby. Vinny, I get it. I was waiting for Danny potentially to get it. Dan Nathan is tuned out. That's fine. But I'm with you on that. And it's interesting. He was wearing the black armband because, as you all know, when they talked about Clemenza, that was no heart attack. We can go toe-to-toe with this shit. But, Danny, I like what you're doing right now. You're saying that Gary, somebody got to Gary Gensler. Somebody got to him. Was it Michael Corleone? Was it one of the corrupt senators? I have no idea, but I like where you're going with this thing. I appreciate it. Good. Two people that are not surprised are Vinny and I. No, at all. Well, I always speak. Like when Washington- you know what your problem is, Danny? You're not cynical enough. Yes, you're not bearish enough, Danny. Yeah, yeah thanks. <laughs> Thanks, guys. As I mentioned to you guys earlier, I think you'd be shocked to know, and I'll mention it again, that Danny Moses, for 18 weeks, has a record of 25-4, and four, which is an 86% winning percent. It's ridiculous. It is, it's crazy. So he's going to share with us now, all of us now, both you, Porter, and Vinny, his picks uh, for this week as we enter the playoffs for the National Football League, the league where they play for pay. Danny. Yeah, so I'm very disappointed the Colts didn't make it. I think they could have made a run, and Carson Wentz getting COVID at the wrong time. Who knows what happened with that team? That being said, here's what we're dealing with. There's two games on the docket that I think stand out to me. One is the Bengals laying five and a half at home against the Raiders. Raiders have to be mentally and physically exhausted after last week. I think they've been kind of pretenders anyway. I'm sure Cahodes will come at me if he's listening to this. That's fine. Bengals effectively had a bye week last week. I think they're still underrated. I like the Bengals laying five and a half at home against the Raiders. The other game, which I think is the best game on the docket, the Niners versus the Cowboys. It's the most intriguing. Niners are hot. And just keep in mind, they haven't had their full team on the field for a long time. But that was a gutsy win at the Rams. Yes, they might be exhausted. But Cowboys also spent everything they had at Philly just to prove that they can win. So I'm looking like at the Niners last few games. They won at the Bengals. They crushed Atlanta. They lost by three to the Titans. They crushed the Texans. And they had a gutty win against the Rams. Dallas, while they've won four of their five last games or something, have been inconsistent as well. I think the Niners getting three in Dallas, I would take that game as well. The other games, Kansas City laying 12 against Steelers. I think they beat them, but I'm not ever betting giving 12 to the Steelers in a playoff game. Rams cards is a toss-up. I like the Bills a lot, but I'm not betting against Belichick. I'm never giving four points to Belichick. And then on the Tampa game, that's a lot of points as well. And I would normally take the points in the Eagles, but I'm not betting against Tom Brady. I've learned my lesson. So I think this is going to be a great run. I think Pac Rams is setting up the NFC Championship game. I think Casey and the Bills are setting up in the AFC playoffs game. From those two, we'll make picks later in the playoff season. But those two picks are mine this week, Bengals and the Niners. Dan, Nathan, come here. What do you got? You're down eight dimes. What's up, gents? All right, I'm going to take Dallas at home minus three for a dime. A dime. Okay. Wow. I mean, Dan just jumps in there. I mean, it sounds like you know what you're doing. Vinny, my sense is you heard all the bad beats that Danny Moses got over the years. Are you as shocked as I am that he's... My sense is this. He had a great regular season. He might crash and burn. I just lost my biggest fan. I'm just asking a question, Vinny. What are your thoughts on this? If you ever saw Danny on a golf course, and I know you guys have because you had a charity event, but there are times when he goes on a run where he's going to hit everything. And the great thing about Danny, he's so humble about what he's doing now, but on the course, he'd be all <laughs> over you if he was killing you on the course. He's on one of these streaks right now 
And look, I'm no golfer, but it was him and Porter that usually were the better golfers. And then when it would turn, Danny would just mope around. So I'm not surprised at this winning streak right now at all. And Porter, I'm not looking to put the horns on the guy, but I'm just wondering if there's going to be this line of demarcation in the form of the end of the regular season into the playoffs. I'm not wishing this on him. I'm not. I'm just asking the question. Guys, he's been betting football games since he was two. Yeah, it's true. Every game, all day, every day. It's just clear to me this year for some reason. I don't know. I mean, the guy bets tennis. Yeah. Who bets tennis? I was DraftKings before DraftKings was cool. Right, exactly. So. Danny, but would you argue your best performances in golf too? I feel like your prop bets are some of the best I've heard. Yeah, no, golf. I didn't do well in the Ryder Cup, but yeah, golf season's kicking off here and I'll be coming in with some golf picks for sure. And we have Ned Michaels, who's literally a professional golfer, sideline reporter for CBS Golf, who has a podcast that he runs with us now. And he's a go-to guy on golf as well. So I'll be leaning on him this year for sure. So See, Dan Nathan, did you like that segue we just gave you? That was nice. I've been getting chewed up and spit out by Danny Moses. And- I've had a tough run here, but it really just going the other side of him. I have no particular knowledge as it relates to betting on the NFL here. So I am also in awe of his prowess. It's over, I'm sure, soon. Anyway. I love you guys. I'm so happy you're able to join us. And you know, anytime you want to come back, you're always welcome on this podcast because the thoughtfulness behind your work is something I think in a world where people just momentum trading and just getting on the back of whatever the Reddit or Wall Street bets crowd is. And listen, that worked for a long time. Maybe it will continue to work. There's so few people that are doing thoughtful work and then work that subsequently comes to fruition. So thanks, guys, for joining us today. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.